and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Also, check out my latest interview with Jim Miller, Chief of Navigation for the NEAR spacecraft mission to an asteroid. You can find that at technologyinspace.com. And my interview with Jane Gilmartin, who just published a science fiction novel about a man watching his clone live his life. You can find that interview at fullcontactnerd.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm speaking with Frank Gus Biggio, author of The Wolves of Helmand, A View from Inside the Den of Modern War, published by Forefront Books, and coming out November 10th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Chris, thank you so much for that introduction. Before we start our discussion about my book, I want to mention two things. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a real honor to be here, so thank you for the invitation. I've listened to many of the interviews you've conducted, and it's humbling to join the ranks of such uh, distinguished authors and historians that you've had on the show. Thank you. You guests have discussed things from medieval warfare to the Civil War to the World Wars and everything in between and even the warfare of the future where we're going to fight with cyber tools and techniques. So that range of topics makes it clear that much of the history of humankind has revolved around conflict of some sort or another, and it's probably going to continue that way for the foreseeable future. And by the way, the interview with Frank Sisson where you discussed his book, I Marched with Patton, and his experiences in World War II was, was fantastic. It made my day. Thank you. An incredible man, and, and we're lucky to have him share his story. Mm -hmm. Second, this, this is the first official interview I've had to promote my book. So it's fair to say that today starts the book tour. And I'm proud to say that we're kicking it off from my hometown of Worcester, Ohio, where I was born and raised. So I'm always happy to spend time here with friends and family, and it's very apt to have our discussion from Ohio, since one of the themes I bring up throughout my book is the topic of coming home and being home after serving in war in a faraway place, which is something every person who's served in the military will eventually deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, so with that, again, thanks for having me, and I, I turn it over to you, sir. Thank you. And I'll mention to the listeners, uh, we we're not doing a video interview, but when I had a brief look, he had a, a great-looking American flag uh, flying behind him over his left shoulder, so it's a great image. And again, thank you for all those compliments. I really appreciate it. And I really do love what I'm doing. So um, thanks. So first, um, obviously, you were you wrote this book because you were there. You experienced this. But why did you want to write the book? There's a couple of reasons why. Um, I had a non-traditional period of service in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated from college in 1993, I went on active duty and I was in the infantry. I served for a little less than five years. I loved my time in service, uh, served with some people who remain some of my best friends today. We obviously got to go around the world and act on behalf of the United States uh, in, in several places, uh, particularly in the, in the Middle East. Um, but I never intended to be a career military officer. I got out, returned to Ohio, where I went to law school at Case Western Reserve, and then I worked in jobs and finance, in business, in Washington, D.C., and New York. In the early part of uh, the 2000s, around 2006, I was sitting in my law firm, and things were happening in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I felt that I was 
missing something and that I wasn't really contributing to society in my country in a way that, that I had hoped to. One thing led to another. I met a former, uh, now a retired general, who suggested that I talk to somebody about the Civil Affairs Group, which is a reserve unit based in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And a long story short, after 10 years of being out of service, I rejoined the Marine Reserves with the Civil Affairs Group with the intention of deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan to support the missions there. Mm-hmm. When I was deployed in Afghanistan in 2009, my civil affairs team was attached to the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, uh, which we call 1-5 in Marine lingo. Mm-hmm. And we went to Helmand Province in a district called Nawa, mm-hmm. which at the time was one of the most violent, lawless places in the country. Mm-hmm. It was a chaotic, lawless, violent place when we got there. Uh, and we did what Marines do what Marines are known for foremost of doing. And, you know, we fought mm-hmm. steadily for probably about a month, two months, the first two months we were there. Mm-hmm. By the time I left, the place had undergone a massive transformation. We had local Afghan leaders in charge. The district center was safe for people to conduct commerce. Roads were secure. People traveled relatively freely throughout the district. Uh, and there was a real presence of Afghan government solving Afghan problems for Afghans. I was really proud of that. Uh, Throughout the time that I was on the ground there, because of the nature of my job and just because I wanted to leave some legacy for my kids in 20 or 50 years from now, I kept a very detailed journal. Mm -hmm. And that, combined with the various reports I took and the pictures that I took, really brought some of these events back to life, even looking through that material years later. Mm-hmm. When I returned, I gave a talk to my dad's Rotary Club, and one of the gentlemen who I've known my whole life, he's a World War II veteran, he told me, he said, these are great stories that you've told, but you need to share them with a wider audience. And if you took notes, if you took a journal, put, these, put some of these stories down on paper. Mm-hmm. And I took that to heart, and it was a long process, but I think that I produced something worth looking at. And like I said, I'm so proud of the Marines I served with in Helmand province. And I think that the things that they did and the things they accomplished are worth telling. And I hope that when those Marines I was with read the book, that they will feel that I actually uh, accurately captured what we did. Mm -hmm. Now, just to give uh, people an idea of sort of the work you did. So as you mentioned, you were with the Civil Affairs Group. And for people who aren't uh, familiar with the military or the Marines, which is probably a lot of people, um, statistically speaking, uh, when someone hears Civil Affairs Group um, and the fact that your tasks involved, you know, dispersing money and talking with leaders, someone might think, well, that's not that's not very dangerous. Um, obviously, they're mistaken if they think that. But uh, talk to me about that. You know, what sounds like uh, more of a diplomat's job um, but it was more than that. Tell me about that. Okay, happy to do that. So first of all, I want to talk about civil affairs in general. Mm-hmm. And with the Marine Corps, and, and things have changed over time too, but at the time I joined the civil affairs group, it was largely a group of reservist Marines. Mm-hmm. And these Marines were spectacular, and the personal, professional experiences that they brought to the unit were really diverse and really tremendous. We had 
people who were lawyers for the Department of Justice. We had a CIA analyst. We had a NASA scientist. We had police, firefighters, teachers, journalists. These were really incredible Marines and individuals who wanted to serve their country as a Marine. Civil affairs, I think it's fair to say that in the modern military, civil affairs could be classified as part of the special forces. Now, maybe not in the sense of what many people think of special forces of like Navy SEALs and Delta Force, but we have a very unique mission. And our mission is to understand everything that goes on in the minds of the locals who we interact with in these places all around the world. And this is particularly important in, in modern warfare. So we are not engaged in combat operations where we're doing traditional tank battles and artillery battles where you win by seizing ground and terrain and destroying uh, the enemy's forces and equipment. So more so, this, this what I wrote about is, is we were at the, the crux of the counterinsurgency effort that we started in 2009. And it's a bit of a cliche, but it's largely about winning the hearts and minds of the local population. And really, the population and the support of the population is the center of gravity in a counterinsurgency war. So we served alongside infantry Marines. My team was relatively small. There were seven of us in my team, uh, which include one Navy corpsman. But we, we marched on the same ground and we shot at the same enemy when we had to as the infantry Marines. But we also sat down with the locals, listened to their concerns, proposed some solutions for their concerns, collaborated with our Afghan partners, collaborated with our civilian advisor friends from the U.S. Agency for International Development and uh, the NATO civilian forces that, that were with us, and really learned about the things that were important for the Afghans to live a normal and happy and prosperous life. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Frank Gus Biggio, author of The Wolves of Helmand, you can find more information on the book at wolvesofhelmand.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Now, if someone were to ask you, well, why couldn't you just identify the enemy and, you know, root them out and, and capture them or kill them? And then, you know, that, that would clear out the area and make it safe. Um, what would you say to that? Well... Um, in, in modern day warfare, it's hard to know what the enemy looks like. So when our grandfathers and great grandfathers fought in the world wars, they fought identifiable enemy who could be easily picked out because of the uniforms they wear, the vehicles they drove and things like that. In, in Afghanistan and in a counterinsurgency fight, the enemy looks like the local population. So you can't just go out and assume that everybody who doesn't look like a U.S. Marine is one of your enemies. Now, one of the challenges is that oftentimes the people that you might be 
drinking tea with and chewing on some goat and um, cooked rice with in the afternoon might be the same person who in the middle of the night is going out and doing some of the insurgent activities like putting night letters in uh, next to the homes of people who've cooperated with the Marines or planting IDs or even shooting at us and engaging in, in firefights with us. So it's a challenge, but going out and just trying to do a war of attrition on anybody who doesn't look like a U.S. Marine is not the way to win a modern war, and it's not the way to uh, fight and win a counterinsurgency war. So tell me, um, so it seems like it's sort of a balancing act, because you know the people in the village should be aware of who it is that's doing, you know, this nighttime activity or ambushes or what have you, you know, planning IEDs, um, but they're not providing that information. How do you you know, because maybe, you know, for whatever reason, they're scared or maybe they believe in what they're doing. How do you balance that? You know, when you meet with locals, how do you get a sense of what kind of attitude you're dealing with? Part of the way to answer that question is to recognize the fact that we had plenty of challenges going on in Afghanistan. Primarily was the fact that we don't speak the same language. It's very difficult to find a battalion or even a platoon worth of Marines who can fluently engage with the locals in Pashto, which is the language where we were operating. So there was a lot of skepticism and mistrust when Marines got there in June and July of 2009. Many people thought that we were just going to come there to be a quasi-security force for the election that was going to take place in August and then leave. We proved that that was not, in fact, the case. And the fact that we were still there after the election started to build that trust amongst the locals. We also showed the locals that we were not there to occupy their lands and occupy their houses. We set up our forward operating bases um, on, on the outskirts and only used some of the local facilities and buildings when, when it was clear that they were abandoned. But the most important thing that we showed them that we could be trusted and that we were there for their efforts was we walked everywhere. You can't conduct a counterinsurgency war from behind the door of an armored Humvee or an MRAP. So every Marine in that battalion certainly wore out the soles on their boots, mm -hmm. knew every individual in their assigned AO, knew the, the patriarch, knew who the kids were, knew which people lived in which compounds, and we walked every day. Eventually, people came to know and trust us. And a lot of that skepticism really went away by the time we, we were turning over to, to the next battalion. Now, there were certainly some people who, no matter what good things we did for, for the Afghans, still didn't want us there. Um, but I would think that by the time we left, the Taliban influence in Nawa was not so much coming from the locals who lived there, but it was outside influence, probably some people uh, involved with the Taliban who were able to shelter in Pakistan uh, or some of the places where we didn't yet have Marines. So it might be fair to use the term outside agitators were the ones who were continuing to start problems there. But we had several instances where the locals who knew us and trusted us and respected us and what we were doing confided to us where some of these Taliban operatives were working, um, some of the paths that they were using to get in and out of Nawa, and we were able to shut them down pretty effectively. 
So considering that so much of the mission involved getting to know people, how, how does a Marine, your basic Marine who's trained to be a, an amazing killing machine, essentially, you know, effective, well, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say killing machine, effective at their job of eliminating the threat in, in whatever way. Um, how does a Marine like that, uh, effectively, um, do their mission, this kind of mission in Afghanistan in a place like Nawa? There's a couple ways to do it. The most important is the intensive pre-deployment training regime that we went through. Mm. Uh, every Marine that deploys goes through a months long workup to make sure that they're ready to deploy. And that includes training evolutions, whether they're at Camp Lejeune or Camp Pendleton, but they will certainly go to 29 Palms in the Mojave Desert in California that has a lot of mock-up sites that resemble Afghan and Iraqi villages. And they have role players that take on the personas of, of different types of people that we could expect to encounter. It's tough these days because, like I alluded to earlier about going to fight World War One or World War Two. You can't always identify the enemy, and sometimes the enemy might be the same person that you were having a nice engagement with earlier in the day. But we never sacrificed the core aspect of being a Marine, and like you mentioned, being a Marine is, is about being a killing machine uh, on behalf of U.S. foreign policy when we have to do that. Mm -hmm. But we've essentially added to the repertoire of skills that Marines take with them to modern-day battlefields. A close friend of mine who I was with in Afghanistan named Brian Heisman, at the time he was a company commander, and he's, he's now a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander. He summed it up really well when he was having a conversation with a reporter that visited us in 2009 who asked him a question similar to yours. Hmm. Brian's response was, the Marine Corps goes to fight wars with the intention of winning. And if that winning means that we bring a rifle to the battlefield, we will fight and we will win with a rifle. But if that winning means that we take our helmets off and we sit down and we drink tea, that's how we win. If that means that we carry a bunch of school supplies to the local school and hand it off to the superintendent, that's how we win. If it means that we pick up a paintbrush, that's how we win. And I think that he summed it up really well. And it ties in closely with the words that General Mattis said uh, at the start of the, Af the, the war in, in, in Iraq. He said, look, we need to prove to the world that there is no better friend and no worse enemy than a United States Marine. And we won in Nawa on both fronts. We won when it came time to engaging in combat, and we won when it came time to engaging on a much more civilized aspect with, with the locals that we served with. Mm -hmm. So, s sort of a que uh, question that's brewing in my mind. I, I don't know if it's a devil's advocate question or maybe a philosophical slash political one, but so on one hand, you know, the, the individual's, you worked with and yourself, you know, you're, you're trained to have some level of independent action and, um, uh, initiative, but you're also operating, you know, from the commands of higher ups who maybe aren't familiar enough with, you know, the ground floor, you know, the being at the forefront. 
how do you balance initiative with what you, what someone might think is the best way to do something versus, you know, commands from, from higher up that maybe don't quite make sense? Well, my experience dealing with and operating under the guidance of the higher headquarters, and when I say higher headquarters, going all the way up to General Stanley McChrystal, who at the time was the the commander of all the U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I think we got clear guidance on how to engage a counterinsurgency war, mm -hmm. and we were given flexibility when we needed to, when we needed to take kinetic action, that we could do that. Mm -hmm. um, the crux of your question deals with the concept of understanding maneuver warfare mm -hmm. and operating with a clear commander's intent. Mm -hmm. And everybody really understood that well. I never felt that there was a conflict between what we were doing and experiencing on the ground and what was expected from us uh, at several levels higher, whether it was all the way up to General McChrystal or uh, Brigadier General Larry Nicholson, who was the commander of Marine Forces and Helmet. The other thing, though, those senior generals really had their thumb on the pulse of what was happening in our district. They did not micromanage, but they paid attention to what we were doing and what we were accomplishing. We had the privilege of, of hosting them on several occasions when they came to visit and see with their own eyes what was happening. And they, they trusted us. And the fact that they trusted us is a combination of the the great leadership we had from the battalion commander, Bill McCullough, and his sergeant major, Tom Sowers, mm -hmm. all the way down to the squad and fire team leaders. And every Marine knew what was expected of them. They also knew that the stakes were high, and they knew that the reputation of our country and our Corps was on their shoulders. And they took that seriously and operated with, with that goal in mind. Okay. Now I'll ask about three different partner forces that you talk about in the book, but maybe you can... um add to what you've written uh so and you can answer in whatever or order you'd like but first the afghan interpreters that that worked alongside the marines uh two uh your british army and perhaps other country counterparts and three uh afghan police and army forces okay i'll i'll, I'll address each of them in the order that you mentioned okay and I'm glad that the first one you mentioned was the interpreters, because if that wasn't the first one you mentioned, I would have bumped them up to the to the first one I want to talk about. Okay. We had incredible interpreters, and we could not have accomplished what we did without them. These were sometimes young men, sometimes older men. They sometimes were very fit. Sometimes they weren't so fit. But... They enabled us to talk to the locals and get our point across. They marched with us everywhere. There was an interpreter, at least one interpreter, with every patrol that went out. And this battalion was on patrols round the clock. They slept and lived in the same conditions that we did, which were very austere uh, and, and dirty. And they, they, be, they, they, they were as essential to us accomplishing our mission as any radio or rifle that we brought with us. So I have utmost respect for them. And it is hard to constantly live and interact 
the way the the interpreters do. They have to take what one party said, mull it over in their brains, and then give the, an effective translation to the other party. And oftentimes, as you can imagine, sometimes our conversations became very heated and very emotional. And the interpreters always kept the emotion out of it and just relayed the conversation. There's a couple of them that I still keep in touch with, and I consider them lifelong friends. I consider them essentially brothers, and, and they, they, they were just just incredible. So we, we can't do what we do without them. And in fact, I have a chapter in the book dedicated to the interpreters, and I, I gave just a little bit of a sketch about four of them that I worked closely with. But one thing that I feel remiss on is that, that I wasn't able to add probably about 20 more little character sketches about each of them. Mm. So they, they were fantastic. Now, the Brits, we, we worked pretty closely with the Brits for the first two months that we were there. And they were an important part of uh, the NATO force that was taking part in combat operations in Helmand. Now, when we arrived in Nawa, the, the first wave of Marines in the battalion that I served with came to a patrol base called Patrol Base Jaeger. And there were about 50 British soldiers there and a platoon of Gurkhas, uh, about 25 Gurkhas. So fewer than, than 100 British soldiers. They were really in a tough situation because of their relatively small numbers. They could not travel very far outside the district center without being engaged by snipers or ambushes, uh, oftentimes dealing with, with IEDs. So just by the fact that they had so few of them, they, they weren't able to conduct counterinsurgency the way that a battalion of a thousand Marines that came in in the summer of 2009 did. That being said, even though they weren't able to accomplish some of the things that we did, the fact that they knew the terrain and they knew the ground and they knew some of the, the key players in the district really helped set us up for success because we were able to glean some of the core intelligence uh, from them, even with their, their limited presence there. Mm -hmm. The third group that you mentioned was the Afghan police and Afghan army. Mm -hmm. So collectively, we refer to them as the ANSF, Afghan National Security Forces. Mm -hmm. They, their quality varied from place to place. I would, I, I'm not going to beat around the bush and, and say that they were fantastic. And in fact, some of the early ones that we dealt with were really problematic, particularly the Afghan police that operated in, in Nawa. The police chief was a very shady guy. He was one of those people that the very first time I met him, he just, my gut feeling told me that he was someone not to be trusted. And there were several instances where he revealed that he was in fact not someone to be trusted. And the Afghan police officers who served under him they really reflected the mood and the personality of their leader, which was not to be desired. They were, you know, in, in terms of military presence and bearing, they they were they left a lot to be desired. They frequently smoked marijuana on the job. Uh, they any any police outpost you'd see several marijuana plants growing next to it. And if you happen to patrol by there at night, you'd catch that distinct aroma of, of marijuana. He ended up getting replaced uh, by a guy who was actually born and raised in Nawa. 
and had had some proper formal police training. And he was known and respected amongst the citizens of Nawa. And there was there was a big change in the quality and the respect that the local police force had once that new new police chief came along. We also had some Afghan National Army soldiers who were with us at various times in different places, and their quality varied. I would say that there were some challenges because some of the Afghan army units were not Pashto. They might have been units comprised of some of the Tajiks from the north. So there was automatically a a language barrier for them to be effective in in the district where we were, where the language was, was Pashto, and they came only speaking Dari. So there were varying degrees of success there. I would say that by the time we left, the Afghan army soldiers who were working alongside Marines in Nawa were pretty good, but they certainly weren't great. And there was a lot of room for them to develop their skills a lot more. We were fortunate that we never had to deal with any of the what some people call blue on blue or green on blue incidents where embedded Afghan soldiers ended up killing NATO forces. But it was something that was always of concern to us. I think that we were able to build a strong level of trust and cooperation amongst them and instill a sense of what I would call marineness in in some of the soldiers we, we served with. But the, the quality and the effectiveness of the Afghan National Security Forces was always something that was was a challenge that we, we had to deal with. Um, at, when you were there, were, was the U.S. or NATO engaged in destroying poppy fields, or at that point was it up to the Afghan government to take care of the, the drug issues? So the poppy production was, Helmand province was the world's largest producer of poppies used to be cultivated for opium. Mm-hmm. When we arrived in the summer of 2009, the most recent poppy crop had been harvested. So we did not have to deal with the issue of poppy eradication, but it was something that was going to affect the the next battalion. One of the big measures that we helped with and we worked with our civilian advisors to, to push was replacing poppy growing with wheat seeds because poppy and wheat have the same growing cycles. By the time we got there, we were encouraging and we were helping support some of the distribution programs to give free wheat seed to farmers in exchange for them agreeing to not grow poppy. Uh, And they got uh, some form of a stipend, and I don't know the details on that. That was more of a civilian-run program. They got a stipend to not grow poppy. They were also warned very sternly that poppy cultivation wouldn't be condoned. And one of the things that we spoke about with some of the farmers, and they were candid with us, they said, look, you guys are going to come in here and destroy our poppy, and that's going to be tough for our economic circumstances. And we said, we understand, but let's make it clear. Most of the people that were acting as the middlemen for your poppy sales are dead now because we killed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will do the same thing if you engage in that activity next time you cultivate the poppy crop. So it's probably pretty smart for you to focus on growing wheat. I think that at least for the next cycle after we left, that people heeded that message. I can't really say what what has happened several years from there, but it was something that I think we um, 
to coin a phrase, nipped in the bud, so to speak. I, I think I've, uh, I think I heard a news report that the farmers themselves don't make that much more from poppy sales that really that the Taliban, um, takes, you know, takes it from them if they grow it, pays them not much more, as I said, and it's the Taliban that makes the big money off of selling the poppy. Um, is that something sort of your, your experience with that? Are you able to talk to that point at all? So I, I can't speak too much for the micro and macroeconomic aspects of poppy growing, mm-hmm. but I think generally what you've said is in fact correct. And that was part of the talking points that we raised with the farmers when they questioned whether or not they would or should grow poppy on the next growing cycles. We pointed out that the risks and the rewards for them is the guys tilling the land were not worth it. Uh, and if they might make a few cents or maybe a dollar or two more per bushel of poppy, that it, it just was not economically rational or feasible for them to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Frank Gus Biggio, author of The Wolves of Helmand. You can find more information on the book at wolvesofhelmand.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. One of the uh, most moving chapters, well, there are two very moving chapters in your book. Um, And if I haven't said it already, I'll let listeners know this is a really great read. It's a really smooth and easy read with a lot of information and uh, definitely worth anyone's time to read. Um, I encourage people to read it, in fact. But one of the the two moving chapters, uh, I'll mention the first one, where you talk about women, you know, the state of women, and also um, children come up a lot in your book. Um, Can you talk a little about the the importance for you to to talk about uh, both women and children? Certainly. So uh, the the first chapter that you refer to is called The Hidden Half. In that chapter, I describe an incident where I was called to have a discussion with a local Afghan man whose wife had been injured in a motorcycle accident. One of the pools of funds that I had access to in my role as a civil affairs officer was able to be used with a pretty wide range of discretion on any type of humanitarian issue that I felt needed to be addressed. Coming into the um, the, the tent that we used as a medical facility on our patrol base, it was clear that this woman had been very badly injured. She had a, a very bad head wound. She had some abrasions and wounds on her arm that looked like she had possibly fractured her arm, breaking her fall from a motorcycle accident. Uh, and what was also concerning was that she was visibly pregnant. Now, she was, she was awake and alert and was sitting on an operating table, and actually operating cot is more of an appropriate way to describe it. And the, the Navy corpsmen were treating her wounds, giving her stitches and splinting her arm. Uh, and my job was to convince 
the husband that he should take her to one of the larger hospitals in Kandahar, which I think maybe was about 100 kilometers away. So he was reluctant to do so. But then when I pointed out that he should take her there because it would be good for the doctors to check on her son, and I gestured towards her obviously pregnant belly. I only inadvertently said son rather than baby, but when I suggested that it was a son, he immediately got the hint and said, okay, yes, I will take her to the hospital to check on my son. So I never expected to have any interactions with an adult Afghan woman. But at that point where I was standing, uh, as the, the Navy doctors started to put stitches into this big wound in her head, my hand actually kind of bumped hers and she grabbed it and squeezed it and held it while they were finishing their work. So it was something that was really moving to me to have an interaction with, with an adult an Afghan woman that way. Um, then we, we treated her wounds and she put her burqa on and got on the back of uh, her husband's motorcycle and they drove off. And I gave him probably about $50 to cover his, his trip to and stay in, in Kandahar. Mm -hmm. So that was something that really moved me on an interaction that I never expected to have. There was also a young man named Ishmael who was probably about 10 or 11 years old whose parents were killed when the Brits dropped the bomb on their compound uh, when they were taking fire from it on a patrol. So Ishmael was orphaned along with his younger brother and his grandmother was the sole surviving adult in their family. They only survived because they were out in one of their fields when this, this engagement was happening. He was a, just a really handsome guy with a beautiful smile and just a friendly demeanor, uh, and everyone took a strong liking to him. He would come to our base and get some rudimentary English lessons from us and would kind of wander along next to or beside us oftentimes when we would go out on patrol. And he ended up sort of being his own patrol leader in the sense that some of the other kids would hang out with Ishmael and they would follow our patrols along. The fact that kids felt comfortable mingling with us on patrols showed that we were succeeding. And some skeptics might say, well, you always had to be mindful of a kid being conscripted to drop a grenade in the middle of a patrol or anything like that. And we were certainly, we never let our guard down. We were always very alert. But the fact that the locals trusted us and walked amongst our patrols was a clear sign that they knew us, they trusted us, they respected what we were doing. And again, getting on that theme of winning, we were in fact winning. Mm -hmm. Let me turn towards, um, sort of kind of step away from the sort of the human aspect of um, the book. Not that that's, you know, it's very important, but I'd like to turn to the nuts and bolts of what was going on and that, uh, can you talk about like going on patrols, what sort of equipment did you did you guys have um what was the terrain like that you were moving through what was the enemy using against you okay so as i mentioned we largely walked everywhere because you can't conduct and you can't win a counterinsurgency fight from behind the door of an armored vehicle we took care of ourselves though in, in the sense that we were protecting ourselves from small arms fire and ied explosions and shrapnel like that so we wore uh, 
plate carriers that had heavy ceramic plates on the front, back, and sides. We had helmets. Every Marine probably had six to nine magazines for their M4 if they weren't carrying one of the larger machine guns or automatic weapons. Most of them would have had one or two fragmentation grenades. Several of them would have had some kind of smoke grenade. So the gear we were carrying would probably, for the average Marine, be about 70 pounds. Now keep in mind that this is Helmand province in the summertime and the temperatures routinely reached and exceeded 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And because we were in close proximity to the Helmand River, it was extremely humid. So it was hard work. Compare that to what the typical insurgents battle gear would be, which would be their uh, shawar kameez, the typical outfit that an Afghan man wears, and maybe a bandolier of ammunition and an AK-47. Oftentimes, if they would engage with us with small arms fire, they would abandon those weapons and any combat gear and just walk amongst the locals. So it was it was tough going. I, I can tell you that much for sure. The terrain in Helmand is relatively flat. Uh, it's not hilly and mountainous like some of the images that you might have seen in uh, Sebastian Younger's book, uh, some, where, some of the other areas where uh, Marine Dakota Meyer served a little bit north. Um, so our area was, was relatively flat and largely desert terrain. However, on the west side of the Helmand River, which runs north-south, is a largely irrigated area, so it's, it's quite lush. And there are channels and canals that, interestingly enough, were constructed by the United States Agency for International Development in the 1950s and 1960s. So that cultivated all the farmland. I Oftentimes, as we were hunkering down in one of those smaller canals in a, in a shooting match, I wondered to myself if any of the USAID personnel who, who constructed those canal systems would have ever anticipated that 50 or 60 years later, Americans would have been using them for cover and concealment and a firefight. And uh, that's that's what we, we used them for. So it was relatively flat with a lot of lush greenery and farmland for a pretty, pretty good area along the Helmand River. What sort of, um, so if you were having uh, issues, what sort of support could you call in? Could you was there any sort of artillery or, or air power or anything to help you out? So we we did have a lot of those assets available. The patrols that I ever went on, I don't recall ever calling in any type of artillery. And when I say artillery in this context, I'm thinking of the larger artillery, but even mortars. I mm -hmm. uh, do know that several times when we were doing some nighttime operations, we would use mortar support for illumination, but we, we never used anything uh, for, you know, traditional in, indirect fire with that. We had aviation assets on hand quite a bit. A few times we had fixed wing, and I was early on in my time in Nawa, I was with some Brits, and we were in a situation where we, we called in uh, uh, fixed wing assets. But for the most part on patrols, we had... Uh, rotary wing helicopter fire support mm -hmm. and we, we use that occasionally 
and quite effective. And the nice thing is, is the concept of the Marine Air Ground Task Force, where Marines on the ground work closely and intimately with their aviation counterparts, the fire support and the familiarity you get with working with a Marine pilot is, is, makes for a really seamless combat transaction if you have to ever have to engage in one. Now, the next question I want to ask about um, IEDs, and I hate asking sort of a cold, sterile question because I always have to acknowledge that IEDs, uh, you know, took a, t- you know, a lot of people sacrificed um, their lives and limbs, um, you know, for the country having to deal with IEDs. But um, but I'll just ask, you know, sort of the technical questions. Um, do you recall, so that sort of IEDs the enemy was using since... It was a lot of foot patrols. Um, were they small IEDs? Can you describe them at all? You know, that whole threat? Yes. So we we encountered all sorts of IEDs. Some of them were smaller ones that a vehicle could have gone over with very little damage, uh, but certainly would have wreaked havoc on a person on a foot patrol. Some of them were extremely powerful and caused extensive damage to those very heavy, very armored, very expensive Humvees and, and MRAPs. So we, we, we came across all kinds uh, with varying levels of sophistication. Some of them were pressure plate IEDs that would have activated as soon as a person or a vehicle stepped over them or drove over them and caused the, the connections to, to activate. Some of them were remote detonation devices, um, and others were were activated with things like um, a pull string or a drawstring. So somewhat remote, but um, you know the the operator has to be in proximity to to the device. But IEDs they, they certainly have a, a tremendous physical effect, and and Three of the four Marines who were killed uh, on our deployment were, were killed as a result of IDs of one sort or another. They also have a tremendous psychological effect. We were very good about looking for and identifying them. We had a combination of, of metal detectors. We had bomb-sniffing dogs, but we also had very well-trained, keen-eyed Marines who could look for circumstances in the dirt and against the walls and in the bushes that indicated that something wasn't right. And that's how we found a lot of IDs. Going back to one of the topics that we discussed early on about the trust and support of the local population that we served, we had quite a few instances where locals told us about the location of IDs that they saw someone emplacing earlier in the day. So the fact that locals came and told us that information is a clear indication that that we had their trust and confidence because IDs are largely indiscriminate on who the victim is. Hmm. Obviously, if if someone can watch an ID and remotely detonate it only when a Marine is going by, then that's one thing. But many of these were pressure plate IDs where they put them in place and they don't care who it affects. And unfortunately, we had quite a few locals who were injured and killed by IED explosions that probably would have been intended for Marines, but the, the insurgents just didn't care because their, their intent was to 
wreak havoc and confusion and, and intimidation. Considering you walked everywhere, um, did, did you move very slowly and carefully everywhere you went with the, this threat in mind, or was it more, were your patrols more relaxed in a sense, you know, only getting tense where you expected to find a problem or face a threat? I would say that to, to use the term that we were relaxed on patrol is, is definitely not accurate. We didn't necessarily move slowly, but I would say that we always moved deliberately mm-hmm. and cautiously and alertly. So it, at the same time, you know, we never sprinted on patrol, but we, we got where we needed to go and we did what we needed to do with clarity and purpose every time we were on a foot patrol. So some of what you said alludes to uh, what I consider very, well, I shouldn't say what I consider, which is a very powerful chapter in the book, which is the one on um, the uh, the Marines who uh, sacrificed their lives uh, for this mission. I'll just note that chapter. I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to that, but I'll just tell listeners that was a powerful chapter. I don't know if you, you want to comment on that at all. Okay, I, I will. So we we lost four Marines uh, in the battalion on, on this deployment. Um, and it, it was tough on everybody who knew them and affected the, and were affected by their loss. The, the chapter I wrote about, I wanted to drive home to people who maybe have served and lived through this type of experience, but also for people who might just be curious about what it's like in the military. I wanted to give people a sense of what it's like for someone at home when they get the, the worst news imaginable. Mm. But then I also wanted to write a short tribute to each of the Marines who were lost. And I, I wrote it in chronological order to their deaths. So uh, Bill Kerr, who was in my team, he was a civil affairs Marine. Donald Hogan, who ended up being awarded the Navy Cross posthumously for his actions before his death. Chris Baker, who is from Ohio and died in an IED explosion and Justin Swanson who was killed unfortunately on the Marine Corps birthday so that was a day that the Marines of the battalion were looking forward to celebrating our birthday but we tempered that celebration with the fact that one of ours was was killed while we were there mm-hmm. so just for this, I, I could ask a lot more questions, and there are definitely a lot more stories um, that we haven't even touched on in this interview that are found in the book. Um, there are a lot of personal stories. You discuss uh, your own personal um, circumstances as far as deployment and um, sort of the obstacles and, and um, things you dealt with uh, with your own personal deployment. Um, but what do you think about uh, the mission itself? Do you think uh were the afghan people able to learn to take care of themselves uh from what you did or once once the marines or or nato forces are gone you know is it does the taliban just move back in and and take over well unfortunately if, if you follow the news it, it seems to be the, the, what would you describe that the latter situation is, is seems to be what's happening mm-hmm. in a lot of places in Afghanistan, including where I served in Helmand province. Mm-hmm. We saw some tremendous successes. The NATO forces steadily drew down, 
uh, and turn things over to the Afghan National Security Forces and the Afghan government was working there. But the Taliban really took advantage of some of the, the leadership and security vacuums that were created by that, and they've moved on. As you know, we're in a period of, of negotiations with the Taliban and the Afghan government to pull out entirely of Afghanistan. I have mixed emotions on that. Uh, on one hand, as, as a former military guy and as, as a taxpayer, I understand the fact that we can't be involved in endless engagements. At the same time, I think of the Afghans I served with uh, and the Afghans I met and the friendships and, and trust that, that we developed. And I feel guilty that we're leaving them to the hands of the Taliban and that there'll be a reversion to the situation that they had pre 9-11, where the Taliban imposed a really strict sense of piety amongst the population. And Afghan was, Afghanistan was essentially relegated to being several centuries behind the rest of the world. So I'm conflicted on what our strategic approach should be. That being said, for the time that I was there and the Marines I served with, we did tremendous work, and we should all be proud of that. And I think that anybody else who served in the country and other parts of the country and saw some of the gains similar to what we did, they should be proud of that too. So there's no policy decision or no high-level action that can, can take that honor and service away from what we accomplished when it was our turn to fight the war. Well, consider in the book you wrote, um, you described how uh, when the Marines were present, when they were able to establish security, how how lively and vibrant uh, the district was. You know, people engaged in commerce and uh, social activities and that sort of thing. And it seems that, you know, even if, you know, these people only had six months of freedom and, and improved lives, that, that that plants a seed, you know, maybe for the children or, or others you know, that there is something better to aspire to. So I don't know if maybe you can address that. Um, that's just something that's that I've thought about in the past. Well, I, you know, I, I definitely hope that some of the youngsters that we met when we were there, by this time, 11 years later, they are all young adults. And I hope that they do think back to the time when the Marines were there and how things were and what we helped them accomplish and the leadership example that we set and I hope that they can take charge of the country and make things like they were uh, when when we let, left Nawa. We, we get different reports, good and bad, from Afghanistan and it's, it's a place that I would love to go there in 10 or 20 or 30 years from now and, and walk some of the ground, same ground and see how things have changed and hopefully Hopefully, they will have changed in such a way that I can actually take a trip like that. So what would you like this book to do for readers? Apart from telling your story and the story of the Afghans you interacted with and the Marines you um, deployed with and others that, that you worked with, um, what, what would you like the reader to take away from this book? Well, I'll, I'll look at that from three perspectives. So and, and from, from the viewpoint of three potential readers. So first of all, most importantly for the Marines that I was with in 1-5. I hope they can look at this, read this book, and relive some of the things that we did and accomplished 
and feel that I captured their successes accurately. And I hope that they look at the book and think about the good and the bad things that I described. And they say, yeah, you know, he, he nailed it. And this was an important time in my life. And I'm glad to have this memory of, of, of what we did. And I hope the same thing for other people who've served in Afghanistan, whether they were with, with another branch or with in a different part of the country. I hope they, they come across with the same reflection. I also want this book to reach people that might not have a personal connection to the military, either directly or through a family member. And that's why I wrote a couple chapters about coming home and being home. And I talked about what this was like for my wife to be home working with our young son and then one on the way. And I talked about my return from the military. And as a reservist, I went back to my job, but I had a little bit of adjustment to, to contend with. And uh, I want people to look at that and say, okay, I understand now what, what people go through a, li a little bit better. The other thing is that I hope this book will serve as a, a bit of a legacy on something that I did in a relatively small window of time for my own children and the children of uh, the people who I served with, that whether they read it now, or whether they read it from a decade from now, that they can look at this and they can say, okay, you know, here's what my dad and here's what my dad's friends accomplished. And it was pretty impressive, even though at times it seemed like the odds were stacked against them. Mm -hmm. Do you have another, do you think you might write something else in the future, maybe on this or something totally different? I, I enjoyed writing this book. And part of the process of writing it was going through my notes and my journal and photo and remembering some of the things that we went through. The writing process was cathartic at times, and I don't expect to change my career title to author, but I do have a couple ideas for some short stories and one uh, nonfiction book, neither of which has to do with the military or war, but are just some observations that I've had and that I think are worth putting down on paper. So um, part of the book, uh, you write about sort of the American publics and the, and the government's um, attitudes towards the Marines and the military. Um, what are your thoughts about um, uh, the, the government's handling of, of the veterans and, and the soldiers of these wars? And uh, and how the public uh, approaches, how the public deals with um, the non-military uh, public deals with the veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay, so I'll answer the first part. The, the first part deals with how the, the government's treatment of, of wars and, and the military. So we we can always do better. We we ask, we collectively as as, as a country ask a lot of our men and women who serve in the military. So what they have to do is they they go overseas and they, they go to strange places in the world sometimes that they might never have even heard of. For extended periods of time, they leave their families behind. Uh, a lot of people like myself and my friends who are in the civil affairs group, we put our professional careers on hold. And we come back oftentimes to a society that might be indifferent to what we've endured and what our families have endured. I think that in the types of wars we're fighting now, more and more people are coming back with psychological injuries as well as 
physical injuries sustained from gunshots and IEDs. We can always do better to make the treatment that those folks have, that, that they need to get over their issues uh, need. So that would probably go with reforming the way the VA performs its business, uh, getting the word out that you know, veterans are worth hiring in the civilian work sector, that they bring a lot of talent and skills to the job market, and just truly appreciating what they've gone through. Now, it's common for people to meet a veteran and say, thank you for your service. And I have always appreciated that. And I, whenever I'm told that, my response is to say that it was my pleasure. And I truly believe it. Sometimes, though, I feel that some of the people thanking me for my service almost do so with a sense of confusion or pity about the fact that I served. And oftentimes that question is followed with a, well, why did you do it? And did you have to go? And it's not really seeking an inspirational answer that might be driven by patriotism or a sense of adventure or a sense of teamwork, but it's more of a, you know, did you get in trouble? Did, did, did the judge tell you you had to go or did you have no other option or were you running away from something? So there seems to be somewhat of a instinctive knee-jerk reaction for people meeting veterans to say thank you for your service and then not really having to take into consideration what it means to have served. So I think that Again, that gets to one of the points that I hope my book can reach a wider audience be, uh, other than just people who have a connection to the military so that people can get a sense of that. Now, on the subject of service, although I am extremely proud to have worn a uniform on behalf of my country, there are many other ways to serve, and it doesn't require a military uniform. So I would say to the teachers – and particularly in this troubling time that we're going through, the teachers that are figuring out effective and creative ways to continue to educate our kids is one thing. I think that the police and the firefighters who work long hours and are dealing with uh, some unrest and uncertainty and fear amongst the population uh, are serving. There's a sheriff in Michigan named Chris Swanson who I found to be tremendously inspiring in some of the early days of some of the, the, the protests that were going on, who took his helmet and his body armor off, and he walked with some of the people that were protesting against uh, police violence against unarmed civilians. So he, he, he's a real inspiration. He's serving. I think, and this is incredibly important right now, I think that any U.S. diplomat that is helping citizens overseas and representing our interests, even in a relatively trying time where it may seem that their boss or their boss's boss or their boss's boss's boss doesn't really care what they're doing on behalf of the United States overseas. And then really important for our discussion today and in the coming two weeks are the people who are working overtime to make sure that people can vote effectively and safely and confidently and know that their vote's going to be counted. And of course, everybody who is going to vote. So Again, as, as a military veteran, I'm proud and thankful to have served, and I do appreciate it when people say thank you for your service. But to everybody else out there, I would say that there are other ways to serve, and for those who are serving, 
then thank you for that. And, and I would be really remiss, and my wife would um, give me the cold shoulder if I didn't point out all the health workers, healthcare workers who are really doing tremendous things to, to take care of us in, in the era of a, of a pandemic. My wife is a, is a doctor. Okay. Um, do you meet, do you get to meet a lot of younger people who are curious or, or interested in joining the Marines or maybe aren't and express sort of like, uh, reluctance to join because of, um, they don't want to go to a war like this or they don't, they're not sure of, of the point of some of what's being done. Um, do, do you have much in the way of, of those attitudes? Do you know? Um, I, I get chances to talk to younger folks who are interested in serving in the military and usually when, I have a chance to talk to someone like that. They're already inclined towards making a decision to serve in the military. Mm -hmm. So their decision, they, they've already sort of taken one step in that direction. And when I have those conversations, I try to steer, keep them steered in that direction. And although I'm obviously biased in favor of the Marine Corps, I, the, the other branches have, have some good things to offer too, that maybe the Marine Corps is not able to, give them with, with some of their, their objectives on what they want to do professionally or, or through the Marine Corps. So I haven't had many opportunities to have conversations with folks who aren't interested in the military one way or another and, and have to sort of convince them that they should do it. Um, but again, you know, when I talk to some young folks who are contemplating what they want to do with themselves and in their lives and for maybe just a four-year period, um, I always tell them that the Marine Corps is, is a good option. So where can people find this book or, or maybe your other thoughts online? Do you have a website or anything? I do. I have a website for the book. It's wolvesofhelmand.com. And you can learn a little bit more about the book on that website. I also have a Facebook page for the book that is Wolf, The Wolves of Helmand. And I post on there a couple times a week with some excerpts from the book and some photos that some of the tremendous combat camera Marines who were with us took. And you can also buy the book. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's being distributed with Simon and Schuster. So it'll also be available in bookstores on and after November 10th. Well, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Well, Chris, this was really enjoyable to, to chat with you. And, and like I said, this is the first interview um, that I've had. So this, this really is the, the kickoff of, of the book tour. And in this era of a pandemic, a book tour takes on a hmm. different format. Yeah. So th th this, was, this was a real pleasure. And like I said, you, you've had some tremendous guests and historians and authors on your show. And it's, it's just really humbling. And it's a big honor for me to join their ranks. So I hope that your listeners have enjoyed this discussion, and I hope that they will be interested in picking up a copy of The Wolves of Helmand and uh, encouraging their friends to pick up a copy as well. Yes, I thank you, and, and thank you very much for speaking with me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.